as we begin, uh, like Tim said, we'll be in Luke chapter 22. We've been uh, beginning our series uh, in the book of Luke. We're going to kind of carry through all the way uh, to Easter. And so uh, as we begin, uh, I want us to think uh, back uh, to the end of World War I. World War I was, of course, a horrific uh, war. The, the battle was uh, crazy. Many, many lives were lost. And it came to the end of this war, and uh, as uh, people were kind of signing peace treaties and thinking about things, they realized that they themselves in the, that generation would never forget the horrors of that war. Uh, there is no way possible that those who lived through it or who uh, knew people who lived through it would ever forget those horrors. They were motivated very much so to peace. Uh, but they knew that in the generations to come, uh, there would be many who would not know those horrors firsthand. And there would be people who would be uh, just prone to forget what had happened there and, and be prone towards war once again. And so they, they tried to come up with some kind of phrase or something that they could help people to remember what was going on. And so, of course, um, here in Canada, they instituted Remembrance Day. And the phrase that's often repeated here in Canada is, lest we forget. Lest we forget is this uh, phrase that most of us have heard before that, that refers to the fact that we, we should never forget the sacrifices, the horrors that were experienced there by those people uh, in honor of, of the freedom of our country. The in interesting thing about that phrase, though, is that they took that phrase uh, from a poem, a poem that was written uh, in 1897 for Queen Victoria's uh, Diamond Jubilee. Uh, this poem, though, uh, even though it was written to commemorate uh, Queen Victoria, and she was kind of queen, this is really the height of the British Empire, uh, the poem uh, does not really celebrate the amazingness of the empire. The lest we forget that is repeated throughout this poem is not in reference to lest we forget uh, the British Empire, uh, lest we forget how great Queen Victoria is. The poem is really structured that you, you see it basically saying, yes, the empire is great, uh, but like many empires, uh, it may fall. It, it may crumble one day. And the thing the author of the poem calls people to remember is not the British Empire, but to remember the God who has remained throughout all the empires. It calls people to remember God, lest we forget God. And so, uh, th this phrase, lest we forget, is taken right out of the book of Deuteronomy, in fact. This phrase that Moses repeats to the people that they ought not to forget the God who brought them out of Egypt. But in our efforts to remember, there are many things that we do. Uh, for Remembrance Day, for example, you know, uh, as a child growing up in Canada, you maybe attend uh, certain uh, assemblies, ceremonies. We, we hear about the horrors of the war. Uh, people remember by wearing poppies. Uh, poems are, are read. Moments of silence are observed. There are certain uh, things, events, uh, that happen uh, lest we forget what happened in that war. But Jesus, when he comes to earth, he comes and he lives his life, he dies, and he, he goes away back up into heaven, and he gives his followers something also to remember him by. And, th and that's what we're going to see him institute here uh, in the passage that we're about to read. He gives his uh, followers what we call the Lord's Supper. He gives them bread and wine as the things by which to remember him so that when he is gone, not only will his disciples, but many generations after him will not forget. The question I want us to think about, though, is why those things? Why bread and wine? 
there are a lot of things that Jesus could have given his disciples as the means by which to remember him. Uh, why did he choose those specific things? What is it about bread and wine that will help his people to remember him? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text. Uh, we're going to see Jesus at this Last Supper. And then I want to ask and I want to answer three questions coming out of it. So uh, let's read together. We're going to read from Luke chapter 22. We're going to start at verse 7 all the way through to verse 23. Uh, this is Jesus. He's about to enter into uh, Jerusalem and uh, just days before he's going to be crucified. Verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. So uh, here, again, we see Jesus giving his disciples uh, these two uh, uh, things, bread and wine, to remember him by and so I want to ask uh, this question. The first question of the text is this. Uh, what did Jesus do? What, what actually was he doing here uh, in this text? And what we see is that Jesus uh, remakes the Passover meal. He remakes the Passover meal. Uh, Jesus waited until the Passover meal to give his disciples uh, these symbols. It, it wasn't just that he gave them to them at any time. He waited until this exact moment to give his disciples these symbols. We see uh, Peter and John going into the, the city to prepare the Passover. Uh, they get it ready. This was a, a big deal, a big feast that the Jews celebrated. It took a lot of preparation and things to get ready. It, it was, in a way, the biggest feast of the year uh, for the Jewish people. Uh, this feast began about 1,500 years before Jesus. Uh, the Israelites were uh, slaves in Egypt. Uh, they were there making bricks for the Egyptian pharaoh. Uh, horrible conditions. They cried out to God, will you rescue us? God raised up a Moses, this leader. He comes, tells Pharaoh, hey, you got to let the people go. And Pharaoh's like, no way. And so uh, God sends plagues, various different plagues after plagues uh, to convince the Egyptian Pharaoh to let his people go for them to be free. 
eventually it comes to the point of the last plague, the 10th plague. It's the plague of the firstborn son. Where all those in the land, uh, in every home, the firstborn son would die. And so before this happens, uh, God comes to his people and, and through Moses speaks to them. And he gives them instructions about what they're to do uh, in the midst of this uh, plague. He, he tells them that they need to take a lamb, one year old, without blemish. They're to take this lamb and they are to uh, kill the lamb. They're to take the blood of this lamb and they are to put it on their doorposts above their home. And then they are going to go in their home. They're to get their things ready and they're to eat the flesh of this lamb. And they're to eat it alongside some bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And they're to, to eat this. And when God comes through the land that night, he says uh, he's going to come and bring his righteous judgment on people. He comes through and every firstborn son in every home will die except those who have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. On those homes, he will pass over. His judgment will not come on those homes, but it will pass over those. And so, before this even happens, God gives them instructions saying, here's, here's what you're to do. But then right after, he tells them, and this is how you will remember me. He tells them, and, and here is going to be a feast that you're going to need to have every year to remember this thing that I'm about to do. Uh, this is what he says in Exodus chapter 12. He says, this day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And later in verse 25, he says, and when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And so he says, okay, here's what you need to do. The Passover is about to happen. But before it happens, I want you to know, this is how you're going to actually keep this feast. In the future, you're going to need to remember this, this thing that happened. And of course, it all happened exactly as God said. Uh, the, the angel of the Lord came through. The firstborn son of all those who did not have the blood over their doorpost was killed. The people were brought out of Egypt. They were rescued out. They were brought through the Red Sea as free people. And so this, this feast, this Passover feast was very important to the Jewish people. It was the thing which remembered God brought us out of Egypt. He made us free and he made us into a new people. This was their birth of a nation story. Where they, there was their declaration of independence, where they came out, this is where God made us into a people. And so they remember this deliverance. It was huge. Tens of thousands of Jews would gather in Jerusalem for this Passover feast. The people would be crowded in whatever rooms that they could find to celebrate this feast with one another, sometimes family or friends together. And it's at this point that Jesus uh, decides that he is going to remake this Passover meal. Look at what he says in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and his apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. This is something Jesus has been looking forward to. He earnestly desired to eat this meal with them. I mean, Jesus had celebrated uh, other Passover feasts before. 
Right? We see that in the Gospels, that Jesus had gone with his disciples. Uh, they had sat around the table before, eating bread, drinking wine, celebrating the Passover. Uh, but this time, something was different. This Passover was to be the final Passover. Because Jesus was about to remake the Passover into something different. He was into, about to remake the Passover to become not about God leading his people out of Egypt. Not about that deliverance, but about a deliverance he was about to do himself. So Jesus divides up the bread and then he says this to them. In verse 19, he says, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So he's taking this, this thing, this thing that they were familiar with, this bread that they would often eat at the Passover meal, and he's remaking it totally. He's saying, it, it's not about that anymore. It's actually going to be all about me and about the deliverance I'm about to do. And so he gives them this new meal. Uh, later, biblical authors will call it the Lord's Supper. We sometimes refer to it as communion. And it is the eating of bread and the drinking of wine, or sometimes juice, based on your conscience, uh, in remembrance of Jesus. And so he, he gives this new meal as he remakes what the Passover was about. And the two elements he gives are bread and wine. The bread, he says, represents his body, uh, which is given for you. This body, he says, uh, my body is going to be given for you. In a few days, Jesus was going to head to the cross. His body was going to be killed, put up on a tree, hanged. It was going to be given, given up. But it was given, he says, for you. That there was a, a purpose in his sacrifice that he was, he was going to accomplish. It was given for you that something might be accomplished for you. In other uh, gospel accounts, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In much the same way that the lamb in the Passover feast needed to be sacrificed. It needed to be killed so that his blood might be put on the doorposts. We see here that there is going to actually be a true and final Passover sacrifice. The true and final Passover lamb that is going to be sacrificed on the cross. His blood is going to be spilt. What? So that God's righteous judgment might not fall on the all who trust in him. That, that God might pass over our sins. He might not give us the judgment that we deserve, but he might pass over it because the true Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So in this Passover meal, G Jesus remakes it to be not about a lamb that was sacrificed 1,500 years ago, but about a sacrifice he is about to do in a few days. But it's interesting, Jesus doesn't give them a lamb to eat. In the Passover meal, they would eat the lamb and they would eat the unleavened bread, but he gives them the bread. Why is that? I think the reason is because in the Passover meal, you would only eat the bread once the lamb has already been sacrificed. So I think by Jesus giving them bread, he's not only symbolizing his body that is broken for them, but he's saying, when you eat this bread, no, the lamb of God has been sacrificed. It's been done. The blood has already been put on the doorposts. You can know that the sacrifice is done and complete. You eat the bread because the lamb has been sacrificed. 
But he gives them the second element as well. He gives them the wine. And he says that the wine is the new covenant uh, in his blood. Uh, But notice that Luke uh, doesn't record Jesus saying that the wine here is his blood. But the, the wine, or he says the cup that's poured out for you, is the new covenant in his blood. And I just uh, highlight that for us because there are some Christian traditions that would say that both the bread and the wine uh, become, in, in the Lord's Supper, become the literal body and blood of Christ. But what we see here is, is that uh, Jesus is clearly saying that it is the wine is not his blood. The wine is the new covenant in his blood. As in the wine represents this new covenant that he's about to make. And that's why we understand that there is nothing special in the actual elements themselves. They are not magically transformed in any way. But they are symbols representative of the things which Jesus is giving to us. They are a a feast of remembrance. But he mentions this new covenant. He says the new covenant in his blood. And I think at this point, his disciples' uh, minds would immediately go to the covenant that God made at the Passover. After God uh, rescued his people out of Israel or out of Egypt, sorry, he brought them out to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them. And a covenant uh, uh, is just an agreement between two or more people uh, with usually stipulations, rules. It's a set of promises of how you will relate to one another in relationship. And so uh, God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. Uh, But there are terms to this covenant. There are rules that you need to obey uh, and blessings if you do and curses if you don't. And this is the covenant that God makes at Sinai uh, with the people. And so what happens is Moses comes, he explains all this to the people, and then look at what the people respond. Uh, Exodus 24. Moses came, told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they're like, yeah, we're in. We'll do this. We will agree to this covenant. And then Moses seals this covenant Uh, with blood. Uh, Look at what happens just a few verses later. And he, Moses, sent young men of uh, of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen uh, to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And so he takes this blood, half of it, puts it on the altar, half of it, he puts on the people as a way of saying, yes, you have agreed to this, that the blood is the thing that is sealing this covenant that you have agreed, yes, we will obey. Only one problem. They weren't super good at obeying. All throughout Israel's history, almost from the moment the covenant is initiated, the people break the covenant. We see that with the golden calf. We see it throughout Israel's history. Uh, They are terrible at keeping this covenant that God has made with them. They cannot keep his laws. They cannot keep his rules. And they keep going and worshiping other gods. They look to other things. See, there was actually, yes, God brought them out of slavery to Egypt. But there was actually a greater slavery that they were still in. 
That's what Jesus talks about in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, men, as we're going through the Bible study, you're there this week as we go through. You, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Jesus talking to the Jews there. He tells the Jews that they actually need to be free, which they're very offended by. They don't think they need to be free of anything. And he says this in verse 34. Uh, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Jesus is saying that us, by our very nature, apart from any supernatural work of God that happens in us, uh, we are a slave of sin. We are in bondage to it. We cannot but obey our master, which is sin. We are constantly drawn towards it. We constantly desire it. And there is much that we cannot break free from. So we, we are the slave to sin. Many of us have seen that in our own lives before we were uh, brought to light by Christ. We know that there were areas of our life that were just, we felt like a slave. We could not escape. We couldn't get out of it. It felt like we kept doing it. We, we wanted out, but we couldn't get out. And Jesus here is, is saying that that's actually the problem. The problem isn't that we don't want to sin. The problem is that we are a slave. We're under this master and we need to be delivered. And so many of the prophets throughout Israel's history, they spoke of a time where there would be a new covenant, a better covenant than the one that came before. Uh, look at how the prophet uh, Jeremiah puts it. Jeremiah 31. Uh, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, comes to give us a new, better covenant. Not just one that, as it says, forgives their sins, remembers their sins no more, wipes it out completely, but one where God will actually write his law on people's hearts. One where he'll actually begin to change people from the inside out. Uh, not one where we will not be able to keep the covenant. We will not know the Lord. One where he says, I'm actually going to change you from the inside. It's this amazing covenant. Amazing covenant that, that we do not need to yell out as the Israel, Israelites do. Uh, we will do all the things that need to be done. But a covenant which Jesus declares everything that needs to be done is accomplished. That Jesus lived the perfect life we needed to live so that we could enter into this new relationship with God. And so the drinking of the wine that Jesus gives to the people is a sign of that covenant. It's a sign of the blood that was, was spilled. Uh, just like in Western marriages, uh, we often give rings uh, to symbolize the covenant promises we're making to one another. We say, okay, I, I promise that I will love you, I will care for you, as long as we both shall live. And this ring is a sign of that love and those promises I'm making. Whenever you see this ring, remember the promises I've made to you. 
Jesus is doing the same thing with the wine. He's saying, uh, here is this wine. It represents my blood. Whenever you drink it, remember the promises I've made to you. Remember the way I've promised to be in relationship with you, even though you'll be disobedient, and the way in which I promise to change you to be more like me. So Jesus gives these people both bread and wine as symbols as he remakes the Passover. But here's the second question I want to ask. Why does Jesus do it? Why does Jesus actually do this? Why does he give him, them these things? Well, the answer uh, is fairly obvious, is to help us remember. Right? That's what he, he tells his disciples in verse 19. He took the bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, uh, if I'm one of Jesus' disciples, at this moment, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, I'm a little bit confused. Uh, because I've just walked with Jesus for like three years. I've seen him do incredible miracles. Incredible things. Uh, healing sick people, multiplying loaves of food, raising people from the dead. In fact, uh, in a few days, you know, I'm about to see him uh, die and rise again. If there's anybody in this world I'm not going to forget, it's Jesus. And yet Jesus still says, here's these things, because I, and I want you to remember me. And you say, remember you, Jesus, how could I forget you? In fact, I, th I think it's that kind of attitude that probably the Israelites had when they came out of Egypt as well. I mean, they had just seen God do an amazing deliverance. The most powerful nation on the earth was their master. There was no way of them to escape. God worked miraculous sign after miraculous sign after miraculous sign. He brought them out. He led them through the Red Sea, provided food for them in the wilderness. How are you ever going to forget that? How are you going to forget that God who did that amazing deliverance? It's exactly what they do. In fact, not just throughout their history, but as soon as they come out of Egypt, they're headed into the promised land, the land that God has promised to give Abraham and his descendants. Uh, they're headed there to take the land, and they send some spies into the land. Uh, check it out, see what it looks like. The spies come back. Ten out of the twelve are like, this is, this is nuts. The people there are huge. The cities are fortified and strong. There is no way we can take this land. And the people kind of start to get into a panic and they say, okay, what are we going to do? This is terrible. We can't get the land. Oh no, and now we're stuck in the wilderness. Oh, I wish we just went back into Egypt. What have they done in that moment? They've, they've forgotten the God who brought them out. The God who brought them out powerfully, who promised to give them this land. They've forgotten him and his power and what he's done. That, that's why God gave them a sign, to remember the very thing that he did. And the same is true for Jesus. He gives his disciples, then and us now, a sign because we often forget Jesus too. I, I don't mean that we forget Jesus exists. I mean, maybe we do. Sometimes we're just so busy, consumed by the things in life, we, we forget. But what I mean more is that we really live our lives in such a way that we forget all that he's actually done and accomplished. We live as if those things actually did not actually happen. 
We've forgotten him and what he's done. A few examples. I mean, we can know, uh, we believe, we remember, uh, Jesus has died for our sin, totally forgiven. We can approach God boldly now because our sin is not counted against us. We are seen by God as righteous because of the perfect righteous life of Christ. We know that. We know our sin is as far as the east is from the west. We can sing about it on Sunday morning and then Monday comes. And Monday comes and you know what? We fall into the sin we've been falling into for years. We, we, we do the same thing we, we've tried not to do. We get angry again at the person we said we would never get angry at again. And how do we feel? God, do you really love me? We feel shamed. We feel discouraged. We feel like, how can I come to God now after all that I've done? We feel like, why am I even trying now? How can I worship God? I said those things, but here I am living this life. What have we done in that moment? We've forgotten what Jesus has done. We've forgotten that we are not accepted on the basis of what we do. We're accepted on the basis of Christ and his life. We've forgotten Jesus. Or another example. I mean, we know Jesus. He is the one who has come by his death and resurrection. We can have eternal life. That after uh, death, it is not the end. That there is this glorious life that awaits us. That this life is not all there is. And yet, how do we often live our lives? That this life is, is everything. We live our life in such that we need to make sure we do this and this and this and this and all the things that we want to do need to happen here and now in this life. We live for all the pleasures and comforts of right now. Why? Because we've forgotten Jesus and what he's done and what he's promised. We forget. I mean, who would think we would actually forget Jesus? And yet we do. But that's exactly why Jesus has given us this meal. That's why he's given us a means as a church to remember him. Because he knows we're prone to forget. Because I know you're a forgetful people. I know you're going to forget, so I'm giving you something to remember me by. Something that to encourage and strengthen you in the midst of your forgetfulness. He's given us a, a, a gospel memory aid. He, he's given us this thing that we can hold on to to remember him. So we come and we gather as a church and we gather, what? To hear the gospel, to sing the gospel, but also in the Lord's Supper and baptism, we see the gospel. We get to see it in, in this visual, tangible way. I mean, remember uh, back uh, to Remembrance Day. Uh, the, the slogan, lest we forget, is a good thing for us to help us remember. We can hear that. We, you know, we can, it, it brings to mind that we need to remember. All those things, they're great. But there's something quite powerful and striking when you just see an image of a poppy. Uh, in, a, in a moment, you're brought back to all of those things. You, you remember the sacrifices. You, you hear the poem in your head. You, you think of the sacrifice of the soldiers. All of that with a, symbol, a, a single image. 
Jesus has done something similar for us in that he has given us a visual picture of the gospel with this bread and wine. But it's not just a a visual picture he's given us. It's something tactile, tangible, something, in fact, we can taste. He's given us a way to remember the gospel with all of our senses engaged. It's this wonderful 3D remembrance of him and what he's done. And it is this that Jesus means, uh, by which he means to feed and nourish our souls. Now, in this uh, meal, uh, there's nothing magical in the actual elements themselves. The bread and the wine, uh, or again, juice sometimes. Uh, There's nothing special in themselves. You don't need to treat the actual elements with some reverence or anything like that. There's nothing in those things themselves that just by eating or drinking that something spiritual will happen to you. But it is not just like an empty ritual that's devoid of any spiritual work. When we take the bread, when we drink the wine, and we, through our faith, remember what Christ has done for us, his spirit is at work in us, strengthening and nourishing us as we remember the gospel. As, as we think about him and bring our minds remembrance of all that he has done, Christ's spirit is working in us, strengthening, nourishing us as we feed on him and all that he has done in the gospel. This is a meal that Jesus has given to help us remember and to help build us up as the church and as Christians. So here's the last question I'd like to ask. The last question is, how should we approach the Lord's Supper? In a few minutes, we're going to get the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper together. This is something that Jesus has given us, uh, instituted for us to remember him. How do we actually approach this meal? I want to give you briefly four things. Four ways that we should approach the meal. The first way is that we need to come in need. Uh, We come in need to this meal. Uh, We we don't come uh, to the table because we have earned a seat at the table. We haven't earned our way to be able to eat this meal. Uh, We don't eat this meal because we look around and we see that we are better than others. Uh, We we don't do it because of our past performance in this week or month. We come to this table because we are in need. We need a savior. We need one whose blood was poured out, whose body was broken. We, We don't come because we're righteous. We come because we're repentant. We say, I I need this meal. And that's reflected in the way even we present the meal. We we don't ask you to come and bring your own bread and bring your own wine so you bring all this stuff. What what do we do? We say, all you need to do is receive. You you come and you take the bread and you take the wine and you simply receive. You, You don't bring anything to it. You don't do anything. All you do is you receive and you take. A beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us. He has been the one who has been the sacrifice. He is the one whose blood was poured out. And what do we need to do? By faith, believing, trusting him, we simply receive that. So we come in need. The second way we approach it is we come in unity. We come in unity. In in verse 19, Jesus says, this is my body, uh, which is given for you. Uh, that you there in the Greek is, is a plural you. It's you all. He, he's given his body for, for all of his disciples, all believers. Uh, Paul, writing later in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, writing about the Lord's Supper, 
Uh, He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So he's saying that this bread that you take, it it is a symbol of the unity that you have. There's one bread because we are all actually united. Uh, In Christ, we are united to one another because we're united to Christ. So we are actually all united together. We don't come to the meal and say, okay, I'm going to act as if I'm united to all of these people in the room. No, no. You are actually united to all of the Christians here in this room. And that Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine that we take, is a picture of the unity that we have together as we take it together. So the Lord's Supper is not something that we just do alone. It's not something that we just do in small groups. It's something that we do when we come together as a church. And in fact, this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, he he warns the Corinthians. They had a lot of division going on in their church. There was people, all kinds of crazy things happening. But he warns them and he said, you need to examine yourselves before you take the Lord's Supper. Examine yourselves. Why? Because he says, if you eat and drink without discerning the body, which he means the church, then you eat and drink judgment on yourself. So you say, you need to examine yourself. What, what are you examining for? Are, you examining, are, are there ways in which I'm dividing the body? A body that's supposed to be one and united. Are there ways in which I'm bringing division in the church? Through my actions interpersonally, through the ways that I'm relating, am I bringing division in this thing that Christ has meant to be united? And so when we come to the Lord's table, we come in unity we come and we, we say, yeah, we are all united together. And if there is something where we see that there's division within us, we need to go and make those things right. The third way we come, though, is we come to remember. Uh, this is the primary reason why Jesus has given us the supper. To remember him, the true and final Passover lamb who has been sacrificed uh, for us. This amazing thing that he has He's done is the reason we come. We come to remember, but we don't come just to remember something that happened in the past. Uh, look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. He says, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Our remembrance is a proclamation of Christ's death. We are proclaiming both to ourselves and to the world, uh, Jesus saves sinners. Right? This is what we are doing. We're saying this body, this, this blood, this is what Jesus has done. And we're proclaiming that to ourselves. We're proclaiming to all who watch. We're saying this is what Jesus has done. We remember as we proclaim him. And through that, uh, we are nourished and fed spiritually. But the last way we come, we come in expectation. Uh, Jesus writes in verse 16, or uh, says, sorry, uh, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Talking about when he comes again, when all will be made new. And there's this expectation he has that he will eat this meal again. Paul writes, you proclaim of the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. Why until he comes? Why just till then? Because when the Lord comes, all the things at the Passover meal all the things that the Lord's Supper are pointing towards will finally be realized. God will finally dwell with his people. 
Revelation talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will not eat a little dinky bread and juice. We will have a feast, and it will be an amazing thing as we, the ones who the Lamb has sacrificed for, have been brought out, not just out of our slavery to sin, but we've been brought into the true promised land, the land that God is going to give us, the new heavens and the new earth. We will be there, and we will be with our Savior forever. And so when we eat and drink this, we look forward to that day when the real feast will happen. So, we come in need, we come in unity, we come to remember, and we come in expectation. So lest we forget Jesus, we do this in remembrance of him. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you have indeed given us this meal, this way by which to remember Christ and all that he has done for us. We thank you for the depths of riches that are there in this meal. And we pray that even as we partake of it now, that you would bring to mind the wonders of all that Christ has done, that our hearts would be stirred and fed as we partake together. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.